if someone was to ask me, you know, what's your proudest achievement since you've been doing fashion? I could rattle off the famous people who I've met and interviewed or the trips that I've been on or the stories that I've written. But really, the thing I'm most proud of is that I've managed to get people who say they're not interested in fashion to read fashion journalism. Hello and a welcome to Beauty Island, the beauty podcast that celebrates life and lipstick. After a little break over the summer, we are back for season two. I am so excited to bring you more fascinating, nostalgic and inspiring interviews with insiders in the beauty industry. In case you don't know, I am your host, Melbourne-based beauty journalist, Brittany Stewart. And each episode, I sit down with a guest to ask them about the eight beauty products that have a special memory or meaning for them that they take to a desert island or beauty island that I am sending them off to. Before you go into survivor mode, these don't necessarily have to be practical products. Rather, it's the beauty products they've come across throughout their lives that carry significant stories or memories for them. Think the product that reminds them of their mum the first beauty product they remember owning or the perfume that instantly reminds them of a special place or person. Along the way we find out more about their life, career and the people and events that have shaped them into who they are today. Today my guest is national fashion editor of The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald, Melissa Singer. Combined, these newspapers have a daily readership of multi-millions. We talked about why she thinks she has the best fashion media job in the industry, what it was like to interview US Vogue editor Anna Wintour when she was here in Melbourne for the tennis, and the realities of dating and relationships that you don't see in the rom-coms. Melissa talks candidly about breakups, divorce, moving back home with your parents, and starting dating again in your mid-30s, and why she decided to write about them publicly. There's also some great beauty recommendations, including the eyeshadow palette that really can go from day to night and that everybody should own. I hope you enjoy. What was your first beauty memory that you can recall? I think beauty and fashion always go hand in hand. I think growing up being a magazine junkie, that was probably my first exposure to beauty. My mother is probably the biggest beauty junkie and she she buys more makeup than, than anybody I know. And so growing up, I was always around a lot of cosmetics and obviously reading beauty magazines. And so beauty has always been such an intrinsic part of my life. The difficulties, I also grew up as a child who had very terrible skin. Um, I suffered from eczema as a child and even some infectious forms of it, which is not very pretty, but I'm sure there are some listeners who can relate to these things. And so as a child... I always had to be super careful with what I put on my skin. And then as I became an adolescent, it was that, you know, that first conversation around, you know, that your mum has with you that, you know, when you're going through puberty, you have to start taking care of your skin and you have to start cleansing. And, you know, it was a bit of an ordeal finding products that, that I could use. But eventually I grew out of a lot of that sensitivity. And that's been great because, you know, the beauty world is now my oyster. You know, beauty is such an interesting thing. It's one of those one of those areas as well that is linked to rites of passage. You know, when you're allowed to wear makeup and school rules. And my mother always had a very relaxed approach to makeup and and things. I think I think I had my first pair of high heels even when I was about thirteen. 
And so, you know, I grew up in the Jewish community. So at 12 and 13, we had, you know, bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs. And that often meant going to formal events when you were, you know, going through that awkward stage. And so, I mean, I don't know what age I started using makeup per se, but I'm sure there were there were times where I, you know, dipped into my mum's drawers. But it definitely, for me, it definitely started with skincare. The first beauty product on your list that you'll be taking to Beauty Island is the first beauty product you remember purchasing, which I think is the Elizabeth Arden 8-Hour Cream, which is a classic. Yeah, it is a classic. And I think, you know, stemming from the fact that I had the, the eczema and, and the problem skin, you know, when I was a child and a teenager, you know, part of when you have those skin conditions is you want to try and minimise your use of products such as cortisone because we all know that, that you know, they can, you know, lose their efficacy or they can become addictive. And so it's like, well, okay, well, what over-the-counter products or, you know, co- you know cosmetic products you know products that are recommended and I always had incredibly dry lips when I was a child and also incredibly dry eyelids and so I think just through a process of discovery it was either recommended to mum or you know she bought it for me and it, and it became part of my kit or my staple uh, I think I had it in my school bag and you know, it was just one of those products it wasn't particularly sexy but it was certainly useful and I, I mean I don't buy it anymore I don't know when I stopped there are a lot more things on the market today that I suppose replicate uh, the effect of it but yeah I mean I'm sure over the years they would have sold millions and millions of them if I close my eyes I can still recall the scent of it that takes me right back growing up where beauty and fashion was kind of all around you did you ever think that it could be part of your career as it has turned out to be now Probably not. I think my first real exposure to to beauty in the sense of where I've ended up in my career was in my first job, which was at B Magazine, which is now defunct. It was in 2001, and it was the first time I encountered this magical space called the beauty cupboard. For those people who haven't worked in a magazine, although if you've seen The Bold Type or any of those programs, you've probably got an idea of what the inside of a magazine office looks like. And the beauty cupboard was this very closely guarded place in the the magazine office where the beauty editor sat right in front of. And if anybody ever went near it without her permission, they incurred the wrath. The best thing about the beauty cupboard is that once or twice a year, the beauty editor would have a clean out sale and everything in the beauty cupboard would be you know, $1, $5, $10. And I mean, we're talking early 2000s. So like something that was $10 was, you know, that that had to be like fragrance or something really special. And I was always, you know, obsessed with packaging, the beauty packaging. And um, some would say I was sucked in by it. But I don't think I ever thought that beauty would be my career. I was always, when I started working in fashion and was on shoots quite frequently, I was always obsessed with talking to the makeup artists more than I was the stylists or the photographers. And that hasn't changed. Some of my closest friends now are, are makeup artists and I religiously spend a lot of time watching YouTube tutorials and have sort of taught myself everything I know from, from them and, and also getting tips from, from people. And I've been fortunate enough also through my career to have my makeup done professionally quite often so I'm always the person who grills the the person doing my makeup on everything they're doing or getting getting the person at at Mecca or wherever I am to you know show me what you're doing and hold up a mirror and 
you know, I'm always thirsty for knowledge. I'm really interested in hair as well. And as someone who's been with the same hairdresser for about 14 years now, I think it is. Hi, Matt. (laughs) I'm definitely one to experiment with my hair. I've been long, I've been short, I've been all different colours, but I don't tend to experiment with my hairdresser very much. So you studied a Bachelor of Arts at the University of New South Wales. Were you born in Melbourne or Sydney? I was born in Melbourne. I moved to Sydney before my 19th birthday. I chased after a boy. Probably not the smartest thing to do when you're 18, but anyway. And I was always fascinated with journalism and media. And although I began my first year after uni, after school, I started a law degree here in Melbourne. I really knew in my heart that I wanted to be a journalist. I'd sort of known that since I was much younger. I was always good at English. I always wrote. I entered poetry competitions. I did my year 10 work experience at magazines uh, here in Melbourne so it was always really where I wanted to go but in the interests of keeping my options open or doing the the best course I could with the marks that I got I I went into law and and instantly knew that it wasn't for me so I moved up to Sydney and I as you as you have uh, very well researched I went to UNSW and actually majored in politics But my part-time jobs from year 12 onwards were always in fashion. So straight after year 12, I was a Christmas casual at Maya. I think I worked in the shoe department on Boxing Day, which if if you want to get a crash course in retail, try that. And then quickly after that, I started working at Portman's and I loved fashion. I loved fashion retail. I had grown up with a father who had a chain of retail stores during the 90s. I was surrounded by family friends who were in fashion. So it was in my blood, you could say. You know, it just so happened that despite my political focus at university that I ended up getting my first job at a fashion magazine. So from there, you've had a number of years working in newspapers rather than magazines, which I think is really interesting. What do you think is the main difference between working in fashion at a magazine and in a newspaper where obviously it's not the focus? It's a really good question and one that I have a very good answer to. Excellent. Uh, look, <laughs> what I always tell people now is that, you know, I, I started my career in, in fashion magazines and I feel that, first of all, I've come full circle because what we should also tell listeners is I did move away from fashion for a long time. I was 23 and... I thought, oh, I need to become a bit more serious about journalism. And I, I suppose I, f- I panicked a little bit about not, not where magazines were going back then because in the early 2000s it was still the golden age. There was still lots of international travel going on. There was still a lot of money in magazines. So it wasn't that. I think it was more just wanting to be, a ser- wanting to be taken seriously as a journalist. So... I decided that at the time the way to achieve that would be to move into newspapers and away from magazines, which I did. And I moved back to Melbourne and I worked for a community paper for four years. And then I was uh, picked up by Fairfax uh, after a, a stroke of good fortune when I won I won an award in 2006. And part of the award or the payback for the award, which was a scholarship to America in my case, was I had to give a presentation and I was picked up by Fairfax from giving that presentation. But for the first sort of seven, eight years I was at Fairfax, I didn't have anything to do with fashion. 
I worked in editing roles and consumer affairs reporting and all different sorts of jobs. And it was only a few years ago when I really wanted a change and there was no fashion and lifestyle content really coming out of the main news floor at the age that I approached the editor at the time and said, you know, I need a change and this is what I think I want to do. And it was like coming home for me. But to answer your question, the biggest difference in working in fashion in a newspaper and working in fashion in a magazine is the influence of advertising. And I always say to people that I have the best fashion media job in Australia because I can remain independent of advertising in a way that magazine writers and editors can't really because they're so dependent on advertising. And as are we, but obviously in a newspaper, you have a broad range of advertisers. We also at The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald have a fierce culture of independence. And so, you know, I can choose who I write about. I can choose who goes on my page each Sunday. I can choose which news stories I go after, which is a luxury that not, you know, not always available to people at magazines because there are a lot of commercial deals that are at play and and they have their place and they're very important too. And, you know, it's, it's not that one's bad and one's good. It's, I think for me, it's, it's just more where I'm more comfortable in my sort of journalistic ethos, but that's not to say that I would never work at a magazine again. Um, It's just something that is unique to newspapers And the other big difference working in a newspaper is I guess I have to fight to get fashion onto the same level as health and education and science and all the other things that go into the paper each day. And what I like to say is that I often bring the light to the shade because there's a lot of bad news that happens in this world. There's a lot of politics and heaviness and crime and weather stories and these are they're all part of the mix if someone was to ask me you know what's your proudest achievement since you've been doing fashion at the age in the Sydney Morning Herald and I could rattle off the famous people who I've met and interviewed or the trips that I've been on or stories that I've written but really the thing I'm most proud of is that I've managed to get people who say they're not interested in fashion to read fashion journalism That was actually a compliment that was paid to me by an editor in Sydney. And that's when I realised that's actually the biggest thing that I've achieved. I mean, I was going to mention this later on, but what I love particularly about the fashion journalism that you do and is partly what inspired this podcast, Beauty, I think it's the same with fashion, is you just showcase the intersection of fashion and culture, fashion and politics, fashion and business. Like you said, to hook people who might not say that fashion is something they're interested in into a story. And it is just... It bleeds into every single area of our lives. Yeah, I think part of that is because, well, I worked for a year as the consumer affairs reporter on the Sydney Morning Herald and I'm writing for the reader. I'm always thinking what's in this for the reader. There's a lot of fashion writing out there that is beautiful but sometimes feels like it's written for other fashion writers or it's written for designers to read or people who are very much inside the tent. And there is an element of that, I suppose, to what I do but at the same time... I have to write for the reader. I have to write for the audience. And I think the biggest test of that for us has been since we've gone fully digital, we can see in real time who's reading our stories. And that can be an exciting thing, but it can also be bloody scary. And the challenge for me, especially in the past 12 to 18 months, has been how do I get that fashion story to the top of the homepage? Which essentially means how do I get it to that mass broad audience space that me and my team don't control 
that people who maybe you know are judging fashion versus politics versus science exactly what I was just saying before we've done really well to succeed the challenge with that and the consideration is that I have to say no to a lot of stories that perhaps if I worked at Vogue or perhaps if I worked at Fashion Journal or a different platform I would say yes to because the question always has to be what's in it for the reader what's the headline what's at stake and how does this transcend being something that's just interesting to me to something that is actually interesting and important to others the second product on your list is the product that defined your teenage years and I think it's something that a lot of people will identify with good old body shop and you've said mango butter and then I think lip gloss in general or is there a specific one well, I think if I have to had to rank them, I think I was always a strawberry girl. They were delicious. They were delicious. There was, I think there were some articles even around that time about whether they were safe to eat or not because girls were almost, you know, eating them. I was much more a body shop lip, lip gloss pot girl than a lip smacker girl. I didn't, I wasn't really a lip smacker girl. So yeah, body shop gloss. And I think every time you sort of had, you know, your mum would give you, you know, ten or fifteen dollars when you went to the shopping centre with your girlfriends on the holidays, and that seemed like a princely sum. And so you know, between getting something to eat, and it was always, you know, if you had any spare money. I mean, these were this was really before the days of, you know, Levisa and you know, they were Supre. Like none of that it really existed when I was a teenager. I'm, I'm sort of, you know, not far off 40 now, so it was a long time ago. And I remember the body shop was really, it was our mecca. Um, and I mean that both figuratively <laughs> and, you know, the, 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 amazing, the amazing brand that, that, I, that I love uh, today. It was always where you went for your birthday presents. And I remember if you got a body shop gift basket for your birthday, you were always happy. And mango body butter was always the... You know, it reminded you of holidays and it was, you know, lush and beautiful. It was about, I think it was about 30 bucks then, which is, you know, quite a lot of money. So you never used it willy-nilly. You sort of, I think you used your sorbeline and then maybe when you were going to a party you used it or something. I imagine in your role there is no such thing as a typical day. But what is the favourite part of your job? It's definitely the people who I meet and the access and the privilege of having access to people and even regardless of what I just said a few minutes ago about you know the people I've met and interviewed yeah I still have to pinch myself sometimes with the people who I'm given the privilege of talking to whether it's you know on the phone or or in person or sometimes traveling with or meeting overseas or sharing a meal with even and I consider that you know it's a huge privilege and obviously it's the result of a lot of hard work but it's everyone from the, the celebrities to you know there are a lot of people I get to interview in the course of my job who you know aren't necessarily world famous but they have so much passion and drive and tell me something really interesting and even the people who I've you know interviewed on repeat and I've said this about Jacinta Franklin for example who's a lovely person and when she was with David Jones for however many years she was with them, I used to always say about her that I loved interviewing her because every, even though I did it every six months, she always had something new and surprising to tell me. And sometimes we'd talk about her favourite music because there was something in the soundtrack for the parade that, you know, jogged a memory for her or we'd, we'd talk about, you know, something that you know, she and, and her husband were up to or, you know, like she, she always knew how to make it feel fresh and she always asked about me when I'd walk in I've noticed you changed your hair how was that holiday that you went on 
And I think that's, for me, the sign of such a great celebrity is that they actually show that they're interested in you as well. And then it becomes a conversation. It's a dialogue. So, yeah, definitely the people who I meet. The other thing that I love doing in my job, which is something I've really ramped up in the past year, is writing opinion pieces. And in the past sort of seven months, I went through a relationship breakup in the middle of last year. And I decided to start sharing a lot of what I was going through with readers. Conscious, of course, not to overshare or upset my ex or any, or anybody else in my life for that matter. And I realized I was going through things that a lot of women out there my age were going through, but there wasn't really anybody speaking to me. There were a lot of people writing about relationships who were in their mid-20s or were mothers. But for women my age, late 30s, career women with no children, I didn't feel like there was really somebody who I could relate to. So I decided to start writing. And so I wrote about what it was like to move home and I wrote about my early brushes with online dating and I wrote about, you know, hitting my sort of, you know, relationship breakup rock bottom and all these things. And it's just been incredible, the the audience who I've reached. And I've reached this whole different audience to my fashion writing. But also I've managed to bring some of those people along with me to my fashion writing and I've managed to bring some of my fashion readers along to the other writing. And it's been a wonderful experience, at times incredibly vulnerable, uh, especially when you know, there's perhaps a guy I've been interested in and I thought to myself, oh, God, when he reads this, what's he <laughs> going to think? He's going to run a mile. Uh, but, you know, so, so far, so far, so good. I'm still single. But it's, you know, it's something that I plan to continue doing because I also feel that I've really found a voice in that space and it's also given me more confidence as a writer overall and it's been great that there's been some editors here who've really backed me in that space and you know like what we were talking about before with getting fashion onto the same platform as all the other news areas I've also managed to get onto the op-ed pages with people writing about politics and you know economics and all, all different other things because you know you can't just have heavy stuff all the time even though a lot of the relationship stuff is quite heavy Um, But there isn't really anyone else at the paper who's writing like that. So that's been a wonderful niche to tap into. And I've loved all those pieces. I mean, you wrote one, I think, just at the end of December, describing last year as your Ariana Grande year of like professionally the best, personally quite a difficult one. I mean, the Age and City Morning Herald get millions of visitors daily and that just online across the two two mastheads and reading the comments on those articles clearly resonating with so many people. Have there ever been any... Or would there ever be a certain area of your life that is off limit? I did once write a piece. We we had a, a summer series called Modern Love. It was a little bit like the New York Times one. And I did write a piece about I, I used to, I was married once, my ex husband and I and it was a it was a very lovely piece, but I think he felt it was a bit of an invasion. We were still together when I wrote it and I made reference in it to an ex-partner and that ex-partner tracked me down on Facebook and really took umbrage at what I had written and that made me feel quite uh, under siege I suppose and I think you know I mean you do own your own experiences but I think like I said before I've written a lot about about the most recent uh, breakup and, and my recovery from it but I've really focused on writing about myself and really tried not to write about the other person. And so I think that's probably an area that I would 
stay away from because it's not helpful to me. The catharsis for me is writing about my turnaround and how I've rebuilt myself rather than focusing on the negative things that happened. And so, yeah, I I try not to write about people who cannot defend themselves, uh, particularly from your personal life. I have, you know, in the past when I was probably a much more junior writer, you know, perhaps have, you know, written the the piece that I swore was non-identifying, but, you know, that person often knows who they are and so they they do come after you. So that's probably where I'd stay away from. But in terms of, you know, the past seven months, I don't think there's really been a lot. I probably keep certain elements of my more intimate private life to myself, um, but that's that's probably about it. And, you know, and even when it's appropriate to share those, I do. When I think that there's a purpose, when I think, when I say to myself, could this help somebody? And really, as therapeutic and cathartic as all those personal pieces have been, the vindication comes for me when I get an email or a comment, as you just referred to, where someone says, you've helped me. I wish I'd read this six months ago when I was going through it. Or thank you for the advice about moving home. I'm about to move out again. And I'm so glad that you've given me some good advice on how I can acknowledge, you know, the help that my parents have given me. And that's what keeps me going. The third product on your beauty island list is the product that you always repurchase, which is the Hourglass Brow Definer Pencil. What is it you love so much about this one? This is probably the product I've been using. And I'm a product, I don't know if I'm allowed to say the word whore, I'm a product whore. You can say any word. <laughs> but this one I keep coming back to. I think in the last probably four years, I've probably only used two eyebrow products. One is the Hourglass. And for a brief moment, I flirted with the By Terry one. But I always come back to the Hourglass one because I loved, I love the angled pencil. I love the consistency of it. What I don't love is the couple of times I've accidentally dropped it and three quarters of it has gone down my sink. I love the look of it, the packaging. It's luxurious. Hourglass, they just make really good products. It's really, it's foolproof as well. I, I just love it. I love the spoolie. I love the spoolie has a cover over it as well so it doesn't get all monkey yeah bag. yeah although mine has seen better days although i will say i was the last couple of days i've noticed that i'm nearly down to the to the last sort of stub of it so i'll probably be repurchasing it this weekend again you mentioned obviously that people that you meet and interview aren't the be all but they are an exciting part of your job and I do want to name drop one person who you mentioned that you spoke to last week, which is if you were interested in fashion is kind of the pinnacle for a lot of people, which is Anna Winter. What was that experience like? I think the, the word I've most often used when people have asked me, because a lot of people have asked me, uh, is, is heaven. How this all went down was when we found out that she was coming to Australia, I was on a train from Sydney airport into the CBD and I I don't think I've ever fired off an email to a publicist as quickly as I did to Prue Ryan at Tennis Australia that day and without stating the obvious but without stating the obvious I said I obviously would you know give my right arm for an interview but I understand that that's probably you know slim chance and I just tried to I suppose play it smart and not harass and 
and sort of sat, you know, sat back and waited and waited and then got closer and closer and she was coming, she was coming and they kept saying, probably not, probably not. And over the summer, as as many listeners to the podcast will know, uh, Channel 9 took over the ownership of Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. So then I thought, right, I'm going to tap that resource. Channel 9's the broadcaster of the tennis. If I can't exploit that, what chance have I got? But it was still no, no. And so I... I resigned myself to the fact that I would probably be able to go to the event that she was speaking at and report on it like everybody else. Possibly there'd be a doorstop on the red carpet. Possibly there'd be a group interview. I really didn't get my hopes up. And then at five o'clock last Tuesday, I got a phone call from Prue Ryan, Tennis Australia. And her opening line to me when I said hello was, what are you wearing tomorrow? And I said, come again. And she said, Whatever year it is, you might want to rethink it. And I think the little mice in my brain were going at about 100 (laughs) kilometers of an hour. And it took me about 10 seconds to sort of put, you know, join the dots and put the pieces together. And I may have squealed. And she said she's agreed to do interviews and you're getting one. And it's going to be five to 10 minutes. Let's just say I got 12. So I was feeling pretty chuffed with myself. So... I was incredibly nervous. I stayed up very late last Tuesday night researching. I watched a great series which anybody can watch, which is uh, M2M, which is a production. I think it's a web series produced by uh, IMG and Grace Coddington hosts it and she gets all her favourite designers and people on. And the most recent episode, which was apparently filmed more than six months ago, was filmed with Anna. And so I watched that and I read... She doesn't do a lot of interviews, So it's difficult to research somebody who doesn't speak publicly very often, but whom you still feel that you know a lot about. So I did something that I don't normally do, and I actually wrote out 10 questions in longhand because I knew I wasn't going to have a lot of time, and I knew that there was no time to blab. And I remember going into the interview, we sort of assembled in a hallway, there was a lot of security to go through. And one thing I will say about her is... Compared to some of the celebrities I've met, she's incredibly unassuming in person. She opens the door for herself. She doesn't have a team of 50,000 people, you know, around her. It was a great interview as well because often with interviewing celebrities, it's not just you and the person in the room or on the phone. There's often someone listening in, a PR person or a manager. And I was in a room probably the size of the room that we're in now, so, you know, three metres by three metres perhaps, sitting in an armchair directly opposite her I could definitely smell her perfume and she was charming and in answer to the question that a lot of people asked me yes she took her glasses off (laughs) and she had an answer for everything and she didn't shy away from the stickier questions that I asked about me too and the controversy over some of the Vogue photographers that she had to suspend relations with and she gave me some really interesting answers about the future of magazines and journalism and we talked about her donation to the National Gallery of Victoria which we all now know is her Met Gala dress from 2008 which I'm proud to say I had predicted a couple of weeks beforehand sort of on a whim so I need to educated guess was an educated guess well it was more wishful thinking I found out I got a tip that that she was giving this giving a dress and in my copy I thought well if I can't say which dress it is I'm gonna say which dress I want it to be and it was one of two that I wanted it to be so I was I was glad that I was I was right there 
But yeah, interviewing her has is definitely a highlight. Uh, she's definitely rocketed straight up to the top three. And what did you end up wearing? After much debate and consultation with my personal uh, with my personal stylist who's another journalist um, not really my stylist but she acts as my stylist sometimes we we do this for each other I ended up wearing a Camilla and Mark dress because I decided that it was important to wear an Australian designer my first choice was not an Australian designer it was something that I had worn the week before for a tv appearance which I felt fantastic in but I thought could be could be anything you know so after some discussion with my friend, uh, she said, you know, the brief should be, we decided it was classically cool. And my girlfriend's exact words were, you need to show you no fashion, but don't go over the top. And so I went with this dress, which I'd only worn once or twice before. And it just so happened that it tonally matched the dress that she was wearing. So it was, it was great because in the photos, it almost looked like we planned it, but we didn't. <laughs> Another product on your Beauty Island list is the product that gives you your signature look, which is um, an eyeshadow palette from Stila. So can you tell me what it is and what about this particular one makes it so special? I have hazily green eyes and in the last sort of year or so, the thing that I have focused on most is is trying to mix up my eyeshadow look and really nail, you know, the day to night kind of, you know, eye look. And I'm really into my brushes. So when, even when I travel overnight to Sydney, I'll take five or six eye brushes, which I'm sure there are makeup artists listening who think that's completely ridiculous. I think Ray Morris actually told an, a, another beauty writer who I know that you only ever need like three or four. So I'm very into my makeup brushes and very into my eyeshadows and the Stiller palette, the which is the the eyes to the window soul, I think mine's soul. There's nothing in there that I don't need or that I don't use. I don't think there's a single shade on there I don't use. And I think that's really the clincher with eyeshadow palettes. You often get sucked into the palette, but you only end up using two shades. And so they they always they all of a sudden they become very expensive shades because you're using two out of sixteen or something. But this one, in terms of neutral palettes, I have. I probably have three neutral palettes that I love, but this is the one that I've sort of worn down to the pan. And it's it's a good, well-priced, you know, I've got ones that maybe have better, you know, colour payoff or, you know, a little bit more luxe in texture. But I just feel that every woman needs to have this in, in her kit because you can do anything with it. Sometimes when I travel, I have event after event and I've got to sort of go from, you know, a a neutral eye to a smoky and then I want to do something colourful and then all of a sudden my bag's like overweight because it's got so much makeup. When it comes to social media, particularly when you work in fashion and beauty, it's sort of become almost a given that you need that public profile for your personal brand. I love the things that you do, like you used to do your spare room reviews, I think, and you do daily recaps of the big fashion or lifestyle news is it something that you enjoy doing first of all and do you feel like it has become part of your job almost yeah definitely it's it's definitely part of my job I guess what's great about it is I can still really let my personality shine through and we have obviously working at a big company like the age in the Sydney Morning Herald we obviously have guidelines about what we can and can't put on social media but so far with Instagram a lot of that pertains more to Twitter because obviously you can get in a lot of trouble with defamation. Instagram, I think, is more about, you know, would I show this to my colleagues? Would I show this to my boss? Um, so 
you know, I'm, I'm pretty selective with certain photos. I mean, there are, you know, there are photos of me in swimwear on there, but, you know, they're few and far between. Um, but yeah, I love my, my spare room review that you, you mentioned. It was something I started doing during FAMF, I think, last year. And that was primarily because I was coming home really late and I didn't want to wake up my partner. So I was locking myself in the spare room. And I just started calling it spare room review and it just sort of took on a life of its own and I had people you know lots of people commenting and lots of people requesting it when I wasn't doing it they were upset and I just announced last week I moved into a new apartment that I was going to be doing it again and it was amazing how many people said that's so great it's back and similarly with my daily updates I've had such encouragement from people who've said you're the first thing I read in the morning when I want to know what's going on I feel a sense of obligation and responsibility to my audience, which, you know, has grown. Uh, I remember when I couldn't crack 500 followers on Instagram. You know, obviously I'd love more. I mean, I think now I've got about 3,500, which is is not very many, but my engagement is really good. Um, I mean, I have 3,500 followers, and I think last week that photo of myself with Anna Winter got like 1,000 likes, and I nearly fell over. But on average, my engagement's, you know, around, uh, it's at least 10%, it's 10 to 15%, which I know is is pretty high um, mm-hmm. compared to what I hear around the market. So, I mean, really, I'd, I'd, I'd love to share more content. I'm, I'm on a bit of a mission at the moment to become verified. Some people will know that because I sort of whinged about it on the weekend on Instagram. And it's not, for me, it's not about ego. For me, it's about being able to share my content through obviously live links on my stories. Um, I use Instagram stories quite a lot. Um, I don't post as many photos as I used to. I think now I'm probably down to posting maybe maybe three a week roughly. Um, depends on the week and what I'm doing. But I really love using stories because of the rawness and the realness. And I think one of the things that people consistently tell me about my social media and my writing, but my social media, is that they love the realness of it and I think the other day I posted a photograph of myself and Kim Wilson who's my sort of opposite number at the Herald Sun and uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna dispel a myth we don't hate each other um, we get along really well actually and uh, you know we were sitting at the Anna Winter function in the in the foyer sort of sitting on a table that I don't even know what the table was used for writing our stories while everyone else was inside eating lunch and so many people commented on that and said you know we love this photo because it shows the realness of what you do and that you know it it is still a lot of hard work and sometimes it has a pretty face and a a coat of lipstick but it's still a lot of hard work you know I'm really fortunate I also occasionally get to have my photo taken by some of the best photographers in the country and I love sharing those images because they make me feel good about myself. They often showcase Australian designers if I'm wearing them. And also it helps promote my fellow creatives, many of whom are women. And that's a huge part of what I do as well is promoting other women because, you know, I think in the creative industry there are so many talented women and, you know, I think it's incumbent on all of us to, you know, lift each other up and support each other. Absolutely. The fifth product on your list is one of the more expensive products that you've tried and loved and that if in an ideal world your cupboard would constantly be stocked with which is to little surprise Le Mer products and this is a question that I ask a lot of people who mention it is it as good as as it lends itself to be 
Well, first of all, I'd like to blame my friend Trey Dallas, who's a makeup artist, for my <laughs> my love of Lame. He works with them a little bit and I'm lucky enough sometimes when I'm in his chair to be able to wear either the foundation or the uh, moisturiser as, as a base. I don't know what they put in that stuff, but it's it's like silk, I think. And you just know it's quality. And I think there are some... There are some products where you can't really discern the quality just by touching it or feeling it or having it on your face. But there is something about that brand, particularly their foundation and also their moisturiser that I think he often uses to prime the face. That just feels so decadent. And even their, oh, their face mist. I love that stuff. Every time I walk through the airport, you know sometimes when you're in a department store or the airport, the testers are real and sometimes they're fake. When they're real, I go straight to the La Mer and I'm like spritzing that stuff all over, especially when I'm about to get on a 15-hour flight. I've never actually owned a La Mer product. This could be the year, although now that I've just bought a new apartment, perhaps not. Um you know, there's something about that sort of French beauty. Although that said, I mean, there are so many other beautiful, beautiful brands out there. But if I could have the full range of skincare, I, I probably would. But, you know, that said, I don't know that it's even necessarily that good for me. And if my dermal therapist is listening, he might say, you know, crazy, it's not good for your skin. But I know every woman has a bit of a, a, bit of a crush on that brand. I think it's also important, obviously, we talked earlier about being not necessarily sucked in, but attracted to um, products because of the packaging. And obviously the most important thing is that the product works. But I think it's also part of the beauty of beauty is the experience. It is the packaging. It is the sense it gives you and the feel of it. And I think that's not often acknowledged as well, that that's part of the experience of the, the love of it. A hundred percent. I mean, as a, as, a young, as a young girl, I used to collect miniature perfume bottles. My grandmother used to buy them for me. Or she had a, a friend who owned a, a chain of pharmacies and so often he would, you know, end up with some when they were doing Christmas promotions. And it used to be a thing actually when my grandma would go on overseas holidays, you could buy at the duty-free those like sets of four or five of them, you know, like there was you know, the little mini Lulu and little mini, like all these perfumes from, you know, like days gone by. And I built up a collection of, you know, maybe a hundred of them and unfortunately an ex-boyfriend's father thought they were rubbish because they were in shoe boxes when we were moving house and he turfed the lot i've never quite got over it but yeah the beauty of a, of a perfume bottle or the beauty of you know a really beautiful lipstick you know tube i mean one of the reasons i love fenty the lip i don't know what the actual name of the product is but it's like the the lip gloss that you can put over anything you know I bought it I bought it a couple of trips to New York ago and first of all it's that beautiful hexagonal shape and then the applicator is really large you know she's obviously made it because she's you know she's obviously incredibly pro diversity and inclusivity and so she's you know she's made it because you know obviously women from different backgrounds have bigger lips or some women have had them artificially enhanced that's fine I don't judge that and there's so many lip glosses out there that the wand is like so small. You have to like, you know, first of all, you have to dig around inside the tube to get the product out. And, you know, so yeah, I think packaging, although there's a lot of criticism of the packaging and the marketing that goes into beauty. And I must say that I do find some of the excessive use of plastic a problem. And 
I think you can't really have a conversation about you know being a responsible fashion or beauty editor in this day and age without acknowledging some of the environmental issues but you know the clever packaging or the packaging that makes a product a joy to use I think it of course it contributes to it when it comes to the environmental impact particularly of fashion I feel like in the last year or so there has been a real shift of focus for a lot of people even longer but in terms of it becoming more mainstream with the waste and the excessive consumption even in or particularly in in your writing you've written a number of pieces the most recent one I really liked was about taking a break taking a holiday from your wardrobe that I think was really interesting um and also another piece that you wrote about how you for another reason stop shopping in mainstream stores because everyone ends up wearing the same thing I think it's really interesting how our shopping and fashion habits are slowly changing or people are becoming slightly more aware of that is that something that you think is going to continue to rise and is that something that's important to you as well yeah it is important to me I mean I don't profess to be a sustainable fashion warrior I have friends very close friends who live and breathe this space and make careers out of it people like Claire Press people like Patrick Duffy but I have learned so much from them but I also acknowledge that there is a wider broader industry that if you know I don't confine my work to that space but I do my work with an acute knowledge and acute I suppose consideration of the message that I'm sending when I talk about certain brands I've pretty much made it a philosophy not to feature fast fashion in my column on Sundays with very few exceptions and that's just because I don't shop there and I don't want to look like a hypocrite I don't want to tell my readers to shop somewhere that I wouldn't because I have problems with it and you know, I've grappled with these issues. I was fortunate enough to go to Sweden with H&M on a trip a couple of years ago. I was also fortunate that they were quite happy for me to write whatever I wanted. And I did write some of the hard, harsh and hard truths about fast fashion. And I understand it, it does serve an economical purpose for many people who can't afford to shop in you know, expensive boutiques. But what I'm hoping is that the conversation around fashion and sustainable fashion is coming out of the niche magazines and coming out of you know those corners of, of the community where people are already woke and already aware and is infiltrating places like the Sydney Morning Herald or the Herald Sun. And I must give a shout out to my friend and colleague there, Anna Byrne, who has just started an, an initiative through her Instagram called Wardrobe Wellness Wednesdays. And she's trying to educate her audience, which perhaps is an audience that traditionally has not been as educated in that area and she's trying to do it in a way that is fun that everybody can get involved with and hopefully will also make a difference and I think if we all come at it at a way that is not you know too aggressive that it can just become part of what we do and in the same way that three to five years ago we talked about diversity like it was this sort of pot of gold at the end of the rainbow that you know about having models of different size and ethnicity and age in parades we don't really talk about that so much anymore like it's some sort of novelty item and I hope that the same thing will happen with sustainability and I think we saw this summer one great example was Adidas for the tennis they just created an entire collection for the players to wear that was made from recycled ocean plastic I just read today that 700 and 80,000 people attended the Australian Open in some capacity. And even if 20% of those people 
were exposed to this initiative, the potential that that can have for them to say, maybe I won't go and buy 10 $5 t-shirts. Maybe I'll go and buy two or three better ones and try to make them last. Or maybe next time I'm going to the shops and I buy a piece of clothing, I'll say, no thanks, I won't have a bag. So I just think that the sustainability is going to become bigger, but it's also going to become more integrated, which means that in some senses, we may not talk about it as much in the same way. Obviously, you write about fashion. I mean, you look incredibly stylish today. Is the getting dressed aspect, you are going to a lot of events and representing the brands as as the national fashion editor, is it something you enjoy doing? You're very kind. I'm having very much a down day, just for the listeners who can't see me. After a week of dressing for Anna Winter, I woke up this morning feeling incredibly relieved that I didn't have to get dressed to the nines just for the nine to five today. But yeah, you are right. I do I do have to go to a lot of events and I do often have to consider who I'm meeting and who I'm seeing and you know but I think one of the best things that's happened in fashion in the past couple of years is the rise of the sneaker as a high fashion item and you'll regularly see me in sneakers in the office sometimes with a full skirt and sometimes with an evening dress you know getting dressed these days has never been easier but it's also never been harder because I suppose there is that social media pressure and this idea of not wanting to be seen in the same thing more than once which the older I get and the longer I'm in the industry, the more I sort of abandon that. And, and I'm certainly one who has, you know, sort of touching on the sustainability thing again, I'm definitely a person who has embraced uh, the 30 Wears initiative. I'll often be, you know, I've got, I've got this one Camilla and Mark dress that I bought for the races in 2014 and I probably wear it, I probably wear it at least three or four times a year. And, you know, I'm proud of that. And I think for me, getting dressed and being clever it's about how you can be clever and how you can make the same thing look different and still feel great. And I am also lucky enough, though, that I do get to wear some beautiful clothing. Um, probably the most special thing that I've worn recently is the gown that I wore to the NGV gala. And that came about because my good friend, um, Jason Gretsch, I contacted him, I think, after the Brownlow. And I said to him that I don't want to wear anyone else's dress this year. And he and I had struck up a really nice relationship uh, through my reporting and just through social media. And I think he's a wonderful person. And anyone who doesn't follow him on social media, you should follow him because he also gives a lot of the rawness and the realness of what goes on in celebrity dressing and, and all the things that he does. And he and I worked together on this dress I went to see him and then it was a very busy week um, he had the arias and I was going to Sydney and I think on the Monday the dress was still a calico and I turned up on Friday and he said you know well I just thought about doing this and that and like it's far from finished and I must have looked at him with terror in my eyes because the gala was the next night and he looked at me and said it'll come to you in three hours in an Uber and sure enough it did and when I unzipped that bag and took that dress out, it really took my breath away. And when I put it on the next day and I was getting ready, I'd already done a bunch of interviews and red carpet stuff and I came back to my friend's apartment in the city and I got dressed and when I walked out of the room and he turned around and saw me, the look and the squeal, or it was some weird noise I'd never heard of before, I've never felt better in a piece of clothing than I felt and that includes my wedding dress. 
So there's a lot of power in having a bespoke garment made and I think everybody should do it at least once in their life. And I will put a link to the photo you posted of you wearing that dress in the show notes because it, it was on my list to, of a specific outfit to mention because it is just, it was stunning. Thank so you. I'm glad that it made you feel as good as it, as it looked. The challenge is where I'm going to wear it to next. Mm. <laughs> now the sick product on your list is your Holy Grail, which you did mention before briefly, your dermal therapist. Yes, I, I decided for, for this um, this question that I would actually reference a human being and I think this is probably something that a lot of people can relate to in that it's taken me a really long time to find the person who I trust without question with my skin I think there are a lot of beauticians and therapists out there who are either product pushers or follow a formula or a template and about it's coming up to it's coming up to a year not even not even a year but sometime in the first half of last year, I was introduced through a publicist, but I had heard of James Vivian. And I went onto his Instagram and I thought, hmm, geez, this is an interesting character. He's warm and chatty and you don't find too many male dermal therapists. That's the other thing. I put a call out actually on Instagram because I said, I need to see someone new for my skin. I was going to a wonderful facialist here in Melbourne. Um, her name is Richie. She has an incredible place called Made by Self. And she's the most beautiful person and gives the most incredible facials when you need to really treat yourself. And I mean, she's a wicked extractor as well. But I'd been battling melasma for about four and a half years. And I decided that this was the year I was going to get rid of it. And I decided after my relationship ended that this was the time that I was going to start doing it because various reasons including the fact that at some point I would probably want to start dating and you know I'm not getting any younger and at some point someone's going to see me without my makeup on and you know I just wanted to feel good and so I went to see James and from the second I met him I knew we were going to work together and it's been a six or eight month love affair that um, we message each other after hours uh, he was recently uh, doing some work in LA and we were chatting just yesterday morning on Instagram and he's the first person who I've truly truly trusted. The reality of working in media particularly now is that it's never off and particularly in your job you have you're working throughout the day and evenings and events there's travel and there is a lot of, of talk at the moment about this idea of work-life balance do you think it's something that A, exists and B, is something that we really need to be worrying about or is it another worry on top of everything else that we're doing that is tilting that balance? I don't think there's a perfect balance. I think when you're in this industry, I think so much of it is, you know, you meet a lot of people and you say, you know, what do you do? I mean, I bumped into someone I hadn't seen for 20 years the other day and he told me what he did and I said, do you like it? He said, it pays the bills. And I thought, and he said, do you love what you do? And I said, I love it and I think the difference is when you're passionate about your job and your job kind of infiltrates your hobbies because obviously I love fashion I love what I do I love the people the people who I've met through fashion have become my friends so naturally often when we get together we're talking about the industry or work or there are certain things that are sacred and you know I think my exercise time, uh, time with friends, I try to put the phone away. But I think 
I think you're right. I think worrying too much about work-life balance can create its own set of anxieties. But I think so long as you are balanced. I have my friends. My best friend doesn't work in fashion. I went to New York Fashion Week and I stayed at her apartment. I was fortunate enough to go to the Tom Ford show on the opening night, having gone straight from JFK, literally to her house, in the shower, out in the cab, and I was at the show. And I came home and I had met Andre Leon Talley and I had met all these amazing people at the show and seen all these other celebrities and got home and I remember saying to her, ah, you know, I was on this complete, you know, delirious high and probably jet lagged. And she just looked at me and said, who? And so I think, you know, for me, it's not about, often people think of work-life balance as a quantifiable thing. I don't use my phone after this time or, you know, and I have implemented the screen time things on my phone and, you know, every day I override them at least a couple of times. But I think it's a good reminder. It's like having a little thing on your shoulder that says, you know, mm-hmm. you know, you've been on Instagram for six hours. <laughs> but I do have, you know, times I just went to the beach the weekend and I was on a friend's boat on Sunday and, you know, you don't have to document the whole thing definitely having hobbies that aren't related to work so I do I do yoga there's a difference between work and a job and so much of what I do for work doesn't feel like work although you know ask my body sometimes after fashion week I'm like oh my gosh I'm so tired there's a balance there but I don't think it has to be prescriptive we're down to your final two products we spoke earlier about perfume and you do have one one special perfume on your list which is by Jean-Paul Gaultier can you tell me the special story behind why you love this one it's not my favorite the reason I love this perfume is because my best friend has been wearing it for at least 20 years she lives in New York she's actually visiting at the moment I had lunch with her today and lucky enough for work and everything else I get to go to New York a couple of times a year And so for me, it's special because every time I smell it on someone walking down the street or I walk past that counter at Meyer or DJ's, it reminds me of her and it just brings her, you know, right there with me. It's funny, two of the fragrances that are most ingrained in my in my smell bank is that one and also the perfume that her mother has been wearing since we were kids. And that's Aromatics Elixir by Clinique. And I cannot smell that without thinking of Joe's mum, Sue. Uh, I think I also wrote to you that I have some fragrances that I can't stand. I thought this was really interesting because a lot of the time when we talk about fragrance, it's the happy memories, but there is one or two fragrances that don't have quite such a positive memory for you. Yes, um, I think it was it was the, uh, the mid-90s and it was when Calvin Klein fragrances really exploded. And so, unfortunately, I'm sorry to anyone from company who's listening i can't smell escape eternity ck1 without thinking of my first boyfriend um, from when i was in high school and i think if i started dating somebody thankfully i've never dated anyone since who has worn those fragrances but it's funny how more than 20 years later you can still associate scent so powerfully with a person or a place or a time and not always in a good way. The final product on your list is the one, I, I quite like to finish on, on this one, is the one that you trust with your life, which I was very happy to see was a sunscreen, mm. which is the, your, your sunscreen of preference. My sunscreen of preference is, I think it's called Dark Spot Defence. I had a quick look at the full name um, this morning because obviously I wear it every day. Hello, James. Is by Dr. Dennis Gross. 
And the reason I I stumbled upon this, I was actually uh, given this one, I will freely confess, but I've really learned a lot about sunscreen through my job and also through James and the other dermal therapists I've met over the years, the difference between chemical and physical sunscreens and the importance of someone particularly like myself who has melasma and who is prone to pigmentation of using a physical sunscreen. And I think it's it's something you wear every day, so I think it should be good. And I've been using this one um, for quite a while now. And I think, you know, my, my face is really my advertisement to the world. As I move more into opportunities to do television, you know, I feel like it's even more important. And, you know, it's easy as a writer to kind of, you can hide behind, you know, problem skin. But really when you're on TV, even with makeup, um, you are vulnerable. I was a sun worshipper when I was in my youth and I am a reformed sun baker. And I think in the past few months, I've really got into wearing a hat everywhere, which is something I've never done. I always thought I'm not a hat person. Um, and I put sunscreen on now every day without thinking as opposed to something that was an afterthought or something that I would remember you know oh, bugger. one of the things I'm learning about now though even through the, through the work of one of my friends who's been writing about this is some of the environmental impacts of some ingredients in sunscreen and I think we're going to see big change in the in the coming years uh, in formulation as people become more aware of the effect that some of those ingredients are having on whether it's marine life or coral or the waterways. And so I think it's, you know, I think we have to be mindful of what we put on our faces, especially the products we wash off because they have to go somewhere. Um, we've also obviously learned a lot about microbeads and things like that in the past few years. So, yeah, definitely, um, I definitely thought I'd, I'd put a sunscreen because of all the products I use, that's, you know, when it comes down to it, that's the one that, that's probably going to save my life. What's next for you? Uh, well, my big goal for 2019, aside from furnishing my apartment, because at the moment I've only moved in just a week ago and at the moment all I have is a bed. One of my big goals is to, um, this is a bit of an exclusive, Ooh. I really would like to write a book. And a lot of journalists write books and I've never really had the right pull or the right topic but we talked before a lot about the personal pieces I've been writing and I would like to do something with them I don't quite know what um, but watch this space very excited that you're watching this space final question of all the products that we have spoken about today if you can pick just one to take with you to the island to keep you company I'm going to give you your sunscreen of choice so you don't have to worry about that which one would you pick I'm going to say the eight-hour cream because I feel like it's the Stanley knife of beauty <laughs> products. I think it could it could help heal a cut. It could keep your lips moist. If you happen to meet a, a, a nice other human, you could use it as a massage oil. <laughs> so I think versatility. I think if, you, if you're on a, a desert island, I don't, you know, as much as I love my Stila eyeshadow palette, don't think there's going to be much you know much use for it there so i'd probably go with the one that's the most versatile and it's almost medicinal there you go melissa thank you so much it's been such a pleasure to talk to you thank you it's been a lot of fun
thank you for listening to this episode of Beauty Island. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Melissa. You can find all the links to the story she's talked about, her chosen products, and where to follow her on Instagram in the show notes. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Beauty Island, I have got some truly brilliant guests coming up this season. Make sure you are subscribed wherever you get your podcasts. And if you liked what you heard and want to support the podcast, you can leave a five-star rating or write a review on Apple Podcasts. I read every single one and take all of your feedback on board. You could also recommend to a friend who you think might like the podcast when you next catch up. Now I'm always trading podcast recommendations with my friends, or you can share it on your Instagram stories. Just remember to tag at Beauty Island Podcast so I can share them too. As a small, independent podcast, all those things really help other beauty lovers find us. And as always, my DMs open. I love hearing your thoughts, recommendations and questions about anything we've spoken about this episode. Just find me on Instagram at Beauty Island Podcast or you can send me an email. My address is in the show notes. Thank you so much and until next time, bye bye.